Christmas, we celebrate a child's birth. But this infant is also the eternal king who spoke creation into existence. And he still speaks. celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the sermon for today is titled The Promised One. If you have a bulletin on the back is the outline for the sermon today. And just a reminder for those who are interested or don't know, we do have service tomorrow at 1030. Um, it goes till about noon or so. So we had a, quite a few people reach out last minute looking for um, a place to worship. And, and I'm really hoping um, that uh, maybe there was something else going on or, or the uh, church, you know, hopefully the churches are open. You know, there's been such an attack against the church over the last couple of years and, and it really, really goes right at my heart. And so I'm, I just, I'm thankful that you're all here, but I also uh, pray and hopefully that you're plugged into a local church. And if you're not, we'd love to have you here as a part of our family. The sermon, as I mentioned today, is called The Promised One. And um, in Galatians chapter 4, it says in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoptions as sons. Now that little phrase, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, packs quite a bit of meaning into it. For you see, for starters, it looks all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And a very important promise when Adam and, and Eve had fallen to sin, their decision brought a curse which would affect everyone born. Not only them, but every person ever born. The curse brought sin. The curse brought death into a world marring God's perfect creation. So God intervened, and he did so by making a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, 15, we actually see the very first messianic promise or prophecy in Scripture. As God states that through Eve's seed, the Messiah would come, and he would eventually defeat the Satan and the end of curse and sin. And then from there, the promise continues. In Genesis chapter 12, as God calls a name, a man by the name of Abram, you know him as Abraham, and promises, I will make you into a great nation, a man into a nation through whom God would bless all peoples on the earth, as through this nation God will send his promised one, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all who would believe in him would be brought into the promises that God blessed to Abraham. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7 marks a, a real pivotal point in your Bible. The message of the Bible from here on onward rests on the shoulders of God's covenant he makes with King David. God says in verse 12, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body. So from the line of the promise, here's the seed. And I will establish his kingdom and the throne of his kingdom forever. 
this promise, this covenant, has dual meanings to it. The first promise was immediate. It was to David's son, Solomon, who would build God's temple and sit in peace on the throne that God had given to David. But the ultimate fulfillment of promise was for future descendants of David, one who would reign as the king of all kings, the lord of all lords. The king would be a king forever. His kingdom would have no end. In fact, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said and announced to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That, my friends, was 2,000 years ago. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 30, when the angel Gabriel appeared to the virgin Mary to make that miraculous announcement, listen to the description of her child and see if it sounds familiar to the Davidic promise. Verse 30 says, And then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father who? David. 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 And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And if you've been a born-again believer for any amount of time, you of course know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. He is that seed going all the way back to the garden of Eden in that very first redemptive promise. But this Christmas, I want to look at another messianic prophecy, one you're probably familiar with, but one you might not know the full story of. In fact, it's likely a verse that you have seen this year in one of your Christmas cards. It's, it's one of the greatest promises of the Messiah's birth that we have in all of Scripture. So with our time today, I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. There should be a, a Bible in the pew if you need it, um, right there in front. Isaiah chapter 9. first read our passage together, and then I want to set the context of the passage as it's written into a time of great darkness and great despair for the nation of Israel. David has died, his kingdom is divided, the nations are in turmoil, and the heart of my people, God says, are far from me. But God has not forgotten his promise that he had made to David. And when the fullness of time will come, God will send forth a great light. He will send his deliverer, one who will come into the world through the immaculate conception, born of a woman, born under the law. For she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And here we will see the true meaning of Christmas. As Isaiah the prophet makes this incredible announcement 700 years before the Lord's birth ever took place. I mean, isn't that amazing? This should cause you, beloved, to marvel, to be in awe of your God, a God who knows the beginning from the end and is working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
So let's start by reading this incredible promise God makes in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning there in verse 1. And here now is the word of the living and true God. But there will be no gloom, no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior used in battle and every cloak rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Amen. Amen. Now, if you look in the back of your bulletin, you're going to notice I broke this up into four points. And in order for us to understand the glory of this incredible promise, we must first spend some time in the context and understand the nature of Israel's distress. This is such a beautiful diamond that if you can't look at the context, you're going to miss the beauty of this pearl. So the nature of Israel's distress, let's first look at the, the problem that's going on here. To do this, I want you to notice verse 1 and notice how it begins. See how it starts with the word but, or maybe yours might say nevertheless. Now most people don't start their sentences this way, Right? But what Isaiah is doing is he's connecting us to the thought from chapters 7 and 8. Because what's going on in those chapters is God has called his prophet Isaiah to pronounce judgment on the nation. As I mentioned earlier, David's kingdom is now a kingdom divided. Instead of one great nation of Israel that God had promised Abraham that he would bless. Remember we saw that in chapter 12? Of Genesis and all peoples on the earth would be blessed through it. Instead, we now have two kingdoms Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And for the most part, these two nations are ruled by kings who not only don't honor God, but have fallen into such an apostate that they have desecrated God's holy temple with idols of the pagan god Baal. And some have even engaged in such detestable practices as sacrificing their own sons in fire to the Canaanite god of Molech. Needless to say, it is a very dark time that we're looking at. Now chapters 7 through 8 focus primarily on the southern kingdom of Judah and an evil king named King Ahaz. And Isaiah has come to pronounce judgment 
upon the king unless he repents of his sins and puts his trust in God. And what's really shocking, besides how far both of these kingdoms have fallen, is the fact that in chapter 7, God even sends his prophet Isaiah. I mean, people always think that the God of the Old Testament is nothing but fire and brimstone. But I see over and over again what it says in Psalms 86, 15 and elsewhere. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But make no mistake about it, the Lord your God is also a jealous God. And, and he's not jealous the way you and I think of, of jealous or jealousy. He's not jealous or envious because someone has something that he wants or, or even needs. He's only jealous when someone gives to another what rightfully belongs to him. Worship and sacrifice belong to God alone, the one true God, and are to be given only to him. Now there's also one other thing going on here that you need to know about. Between these two kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the south, there has become great enmity between them. And Israel decides they're going to make an alliance with Syria. And they're going to invade Judah, tearing apart, dividing it up amongst themselves. Meanwhile, King Ahaz in the southern kingdom fears this threat from the north, and he's thinking about making his own alliance with Assyria, who, by the way, is the world power of the day. So you have both of these kingdoms, living pagan lifestyles, jockeying for position of power one over the other, leaning on pagan nations to destroy one another. And you ask, where is God's people in all of this? And how will the promised one even come? And so Isaiah now comes to King Ahaz, and he says, don't do this with Assyria. God will establish your house. And the Lord said to Ahaz, test me on this. Ask for yourself a sign, as this would be a sign of God's commitment to bless his house. But Ahaz puts on a pious front and refuses to ask for a sign. Well, this really sets Isaiah off. And in verse 13, he says to King Ahaz of chapter 7, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? By declining God's offer for a sign, notice that it is now my God and not your God or, or our God. Uh, you've tried the patience of men. Will you really try the patience of my God also? But God will still give a sign to the house of David and for all who will see this miraculous sign in the future and will come to believe it. Notice what Isaiah says in chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the, law, the, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And we know, of course, from the New Testament that they applied this name to Christ. For as Matthew 123 says, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Sadly for King Ahaz, he is so dead in his sins, he could not see this offer of salvation laid out before him. He will not stand firm in faith. He will trust his own scheme, and he makes an alliance with the evil king of Assyria. And as the prophet makes clear in chapters 7 and 8, yes, Assyria will deliver him from the problem that's happening in the north, 
but later they will actually return, and it will be Babylon who destroys and wipes out Judah and Jerusalem, the temple, all the surrounding areas, taking those who survive into captivity, and yet God, who's the faithful one, will still bring about a remnant, a restoration of God's commitment to put one from David's line on the throne, the lion of the tribe of Judah will ultimately prevail. So when we come then to Isaiah chapter 9, Israel and Judah are famished. They're under great suffering for what has come upon them. And as they look around, all they see is brokenness and distress, suffering and pain. They're crushed under a great famine, and they're looking for help wherever they might find it. But what I want you to notice is, is how far the people of God had fallen. Notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 19. When they say to consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? So they're still living this pagan lifestyle. They're consulting the mediums and wizards when they could come to the living God and get counsel. Verse 20, consult the law rather and the testimony of scripture. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light of God. He means there's, there's no light in them. Then, verse 21, they will pass through the land, hard-pressed, famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged, and they will curse their king and their God and their face upward. Then they will look to the earth. They're going to look to the earth for their hope, and behold, this is what they're going to see distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. The more that they kept looking to the earth for help, the more they saw things get darker and darker. It's a very bleak picture that we're looking at here. And it's truly a picture of the land even right before the Lord came into it and was born in a manger. Israel then was also lost in an apostate religion. They had corrupted leaders with Rome and a corrupted religion. They were a nation that was just as lost and confused. They also dwelt in a great darkness. And for the last 400 years, there had been no prophets and no word from God. It's called the 400 silent leaders between the end of your Old Testament and the beginning of the book of Matthew. And so it was the same kind of picture, and I believe... It is the same picture that we sit in and look at the world today. This is the context that chapter 9 is dropped into. But, nevertheless, God will send a great light. A new day will dawn as God once again will intercede on man's behalf. And he brings good news, good news of glad tidings. So what I want to do today is I want to look at this text and again, look at the true meaning of Christmas in the story. And maybe, Tanya, you could, could discover that great light that could dispel the darkness that you may be in and you're experiencing. And I want you to know, I've been praying for this service all week. So those of you who are here have prayed over you. And I've been asking God to let the light of Christ to shine into your hearts. And that he will give you eyes to see and ears to hear. What a glorious, glorious news about a Savior who came into the world 2,000 years ago. Through a virgin birth, a miraculous conception, in order to save his people from their sins. So let's look at this in verses 1 and 2. And again, 
this is kind of outlining this same point of, number one, the nature of Israel's distress. Notice in verses 1 and 2 how this plays out. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Isaiah 8 ended with darkness and, and gloom, um, a corrupt and wicked people who were seeing the occult of uh, wisdom through mediums and, and rejecting the wisdom of God. The people were roaming the earth angry, cursing their king and cursing up at God. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali was the land of the Gentiles. They were a people walking in darkness. At that time, separate from Christ, they did not know God and were strangers, Ephesians 2 says, to the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God. Later on, if you read in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, it's going to say, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But this dark place has a nevertheless there will be no more gloom. It has a, but now God has done something, and he's come to shine the light into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 1, he mentions Zebulun and Naphtali are in darkness. Destruction surrounds them, but in this, he says, all of a sudden, they're going to see a great light. And I want you to show you this prophecy fulfilled in the time of Christ. Again, be in awe, beloved, as this was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. Turn for a moment to Matthew chapter 4. I want you to see this yourself. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. You recall in the beginning of Matthew 4, we see Jesus emerge victorious as he overcomes Satan and his temptation. Jesus then leaves his hometown of Nazareth after the people there try to kill him by throwing him off a cliff, we learn in Luke. And the Lord, he goes up to the region of Galilee, and he begins preaching the gospel up there. And then uh, notice what it says there in verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put into prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, and now here is the prophecy of Isaiah 9, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, what do we see? The prophecy is fulfilled in their midst. Christ, the true and great light, has come. The king of the kingdom is here. It's 700 years later, and Jesus comes to earth saying, You remember what Isaiah said in chapter 9? It's being fulfilled in your midst. 
I am the great light. You will no longer walk in darkness. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Turn from your darkness and gloom. Repent for the kingdom of God is hand. Come, come to me. Come to me, Christ will say. And that's Jesus' promise still today. Come to me, the person, not a teaching, not something else to me, to Christ, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And this fulfills what we're looking at in Isaiah 9. Now, before we move on, I want you to notice just a couple other of the New Testament writers who also speak to what Isaiah said, so you can see it being fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Luke 1, 67. Here we see John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, a priest of the temple, a man of God filled with the Spirit of God, as he prophesied not only that his son of his would prepare the way for the Lord, but we'll see also in these verses that he's well aware of what Isaiah said, as this deliverer will shine light into the darkness, and he will fulfill all the promises to the house of David and going all the way back to Abraham. This is just incredible. Notice this in verse 67. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by mouth of his holy prophets from old, you know, such as Isaiah and Micah and Jeremiah and the rest, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Man, this sure sounds like a summary of everything we've been talking about, doesn't it? We see in this Genesis chapter 12, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God has raised up a horn, verse 67, as salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's a quote from King David from Psalm 18 and Psalm 148, talking about the Messiah. And then in verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness. This is exactly what the prophet's saying back in chapter 2. So God's people were all on the same page about who Messiah should be. Who this promised one would be, what family line he was to come from, and when he appeared, what he would do. And all this was announced hundreds of years before it happened, and all of God's people are saying it's going down just as Isaiah said it would. Amazing. I just want to share a couple more with you, and hopefully that you're in awe like I am. Turn over probably one page, Luke chapter 2, verse 29. And there's tons of these, but th these are just wonderful. Luke chapter 2, we meet a man named Simeon, a, a just and devout man of God, 
Simeon, who is also filled with the Holy Spirit, is at the temple and he's been waiting a long time, waiting for the babe Christ to appear as God had told him. The Spirit had revealed that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. So when Mary and Joseph bring the Lord to the temple to dedicate their firstborn son to God, they put the babe into Simeon's arms and listen to what he says. Verse 29, holding the babe Christ. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. And then he quotes Isaiah 9, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles in the glory of your people. Isn't that amazing? John chapter 1 verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. So all the New Testament writers agree when Jesus came into the world, he fulfilled all of this. Everything that Isaiah and all the other prophets says, he fulfills perfectly. For those who are walking in darkness, Jesus is the light of the world. And he came into our darkness, born of a virgin, in order to deliver us from our bondage of sin and death and the consequences that came from Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man. In the garden, God dwelled with man. He was with his creation. Sin separates man from a holy God, and now Christ is bringing man back to God. Christ is bringing man back to God. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. That, beloved, is what is the great light has done. For it is through Christ that we can have true peace with God. Much more to say, but let's go to the shorter points. Point number two, I want you to see this light produces joy. This true light produces joy. The source of all of our joy is found in this great light who has come. Notice verses 3 through 5. Isaiah chapter 9. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. You will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil... For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. As at the battle of Midian, for every boot of the booted warrior and the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire. Because this great light has shined into the darkness, people have responded with ever exceeding joy. Salvation joy. Let's notice these descriptions in verse 3. The nation multiplies. It's growing. It's a sign of prosperity. Also in verse 3, the people rejoice as on a day when a great war had ended in total victory with this an abundant plunder for all. In verse 4, the joy is likened to the day of Midian. Great defeat. A wonderful story from the book of Judges when uh, Gideon and uh, his 300 troops uh, miraculously miraculously defeat the overwhelming and oppressive Midianites, without ever picking up their swords. Remember that story? And as a result, 
the yoke of this burden and the staff that was on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressors has been shattered. That's what Isaiah is talking about. And, and then in verse 5, he tells us that all the trampling boots and the bloody garments from the battle were gathered up and used for fuel for the fire. All right, so Isaiah is saying in the same way, we might look at Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, which has broken the yoke of bondage of sin, the rod from the accuser, and has been smashed to bits by this great light, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your bondage of sin is over. No more will sin have dominion over you. The great light has come. I'm taking that yoke off your neck, the staff off your shoulders, the rod that has held you down and oppressed you. I'm freeing you, God says. All those shackles are going to fall right off. And what is left is nothing but pure joy and gladness, rejoicing for such a glorious Savior as this. The light of the world, I can guarantee you, will increase your gladness. He will increase your gladness. He's going to wash you and cleanse you and establish you and move you in order to bring you back to God. The light of the world produces joy. That's what he's telling us here. When you finally, man, when you finally come to recognize uh, what God has delivered you from, what he saved you from, when, when you have a, a testimony uh, of knowing the depths of your uh, depravity, and the consequences of your sin, when you truly understand that, when you experience the mercy and the saving grace of our God and the forgiveness of sins, and you see all that glory, the glory of the beautiful Savior, high and lifted up, who has died so you could live, the joy that it brings far surpasses anything that this world has to offer. The joy of knowing you have been totally and completely acquitted of your sin and accepted by God is a gift that only God can give. And so I urge you on the authority of God's word, receive it. Receive this precious gift, who is Christ. Point number one was the nature of Israel's distress. Point number two is the light which produces joy. And then let's do point number three is the son that will be given. The son that will be given. This is the verse that, that most of you uh, probably have a head knowledge of from seeing on a card. I want this to be written on your heart. I want this verse not written on the card, but written on your heart. Notice what verse 6 says. For to us a child is born. To us a son will be given. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name, what is his name? He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Notice first how this description begins. For to us a child is born. To us a son will be given. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And did you notice how this first part of the verse anticipates his dual nature? Notice this. See how it says, a child is born. Then it says, a son will be given. That's because Jesus was not born as a son, because he already was the son. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. So verse 6 says, to us a son will be given. John 3.16 tells us this also. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave 
his only begotten son. However, today, we celebrate the truth that Jesus was also born as a child. It says, for to us a child is born. And this is describing for us the incarnation. The incarnation is when the eternal son of God added to his divine nature, his human nature. All right? So though he was miraculously conceived in Mary's womb, he was truly conceived nonetheless, thus adding to his deity human nature. And therefore, he was subjected then to our limitations. Um, he will grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. Uh, he lived his life. He would get thirsty and tired and hungry. Jesus wept. Jesus slept. He was both fully man, fully God. He was the seed that had come from Eve, from the line. He had come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had to come from the seed of David, and here is that seed. He is going to be conceived into this world to us. A son will be given. And then it says, and the government will rest on his shoulders. This now moves us from the incarnation of Christ to the, the millennium kingdom. A, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth when the Lord returns. Read it in Revelation 20. But also, this has Christ is in view here as the righteous king, who of course is ruling and reigning from heaven right now. He's on the throne. And contrast that with the wicked kings that Israel had seen. They've seen evil king after evil king. Look at the rulers we have representing us today. Wicked kings. Isaiah is saying, you're going to have a ruler over you who's going to rule for the well-being of his people. And in his sovereignty, he's going to have perfect wisdom and perfect justice and love. He's the king we've always dreamed of. This is the king of kings, lord of lords, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Make no mistake about it, it will be Christ who will bring all history to his climactic end. Read Revelations chapter 19 to 21 to see the fulfillment of all this, where he's going to be exalted and he will be worshipped forever and ever. Right before Jesus' ascension to heaven, I just remind you again what he said to his disciples. 2018, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is the Lord Jesus Christ and currently sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And even now, he is high and lifted up on his throne, ruling his kingdom, which will have no end. Now let's look at these four descriptive names Isaiah gives us in the second half of verse 6. Because even though this child won't be born for another 700 years, John 12, 41 tells us that Isaiah saw the Son of God's glory and spoke of it. John 12, 41 tells us that. So this is why he's a good man to tell us who this Christ, yet born, will be. These are just some of the many names that we apply to Christ. First, Jesus will be called what? Wonderful Counselor. Now, this has to do with the, the Son's wisdom, because wisdom is what um, a counselor provides, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. This speaks to his omniscience. And again, unlike the wicked rulers of Isaiah's day, he will reign on David's throne, verse 7 says, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. This is the promised one we've all been waiting for. Okay? Second, he will be called Mighty God. This name really clinches the incarnation. 
this child, who has always been the son, is also mighty God. He will be born just as every other child is born in a womb. However, he will not possess the inherent sin nature of Adam. When the angel appeared to Mary in Luke 1, he said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. So the testimony of both Old and New Testaments is that this Son will be God, God incarnate. John 1 verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This Son spoke everything into existence. He opens a door no one can shut. He shuts a door no one can open. He sustains the entire universe by the word of his power. He has the power to forgive sins. He has the power to raise the dead. Let that take your breath away. This is an incredible plan by an almighty God. He was born in a manger as a son, died on the cross as our savior, rose from the dead as the victor, and now reigns on the throne as the king of kings. Lord of oh Lord, is he an almighty God? Oh yeah, he is. Amen, amen. This Christmas, don't stay at the manger. Don't stay there. See him at the manger. Celebrate the word, the beautiful son given. See him at Calvary's cross. And see himself for our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by your wounds, you have been healed. Amen. And I remind you again what the angel says in Matthew 121. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Beloved, only mighty God can do that. Third name, he should be called Eternal Father. Now, the cult of, of feeding ground with this phrase. Uh, we believe there's one God, but three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We see this clearly throughout Scripture. And though God the Father is uniquely the Father of all things, Jesus becomes a kind of father in the sense that when he died for sinners, he produces a new family as we become new creations in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.18 says, Christ is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus says to his disciples in John 14.18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So, in the context where he describes himself as not leaving them as orphans, but I will come to you, we see him as like a loving Father. They won't be alone, Jesus says. I am coming to you. He'll provide for them as a parent, as a loving father, would care for his child. And he says, in that day, you will know that I am in my father, and you in me, and I in you. So there's a sense in which, while God the Father is the ultimate, he's, he's the Father God. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside still waters. He goes before me. The sheep follow. They know his voice. He calls them by name. He's fatherly in that he watches over his flock. And he'll lead them to safety, to their eternal home, safe and sound. Oh, yeah, he's an eternal father. And then finally, he will be called the Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. We again turn to the prophet Isaiah to expound this idea to us. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. So there's a, a healing peace that comes through Christ for bearing our transgressions. As Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, declared righteous by God, we have peace with God through the Son, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then John 14.27, on the eve of his betrayal, Jesus has comforted his own followers with these words. He said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So, if you're wondering how will the Son govern over his kingdom, the answer is we will be governed by a wonderful counselor who is infinitely wise, a mighty God who upholds the entire universe by the power of his word. No one can defeat him. He will be an eternal father, that is, he will care and provide comfort as a loving father would for all of eternity. And it will be led by the Prince of Peace as the whole world will be transformed into a place of justice, righteousness, and peace. And this leads us to our final point. Five more minutes. Point number four. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. This is God's declaration. Notice what we're told in verse seven. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Psalm 124 8 says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Our help, our only hope is in this name. The person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good shepherd is calling his sheep by name. He's building his kingdom. Okay? There will be no end to it. And as he builds it, it keeps on expanding. Okay? Every day, another sheep hears the good shepherd's call. Hebrews 6 says, God has given us an oath, and he cannot lie. And here he says, I will bring this about. A child will be born. A son will be given and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. His enemies cannot stop him. He is almighty God. And 700 years later, true to his promise, God did this, didn't he? Amen? A child was born. And to us, a son was given. And the light of the world was born into this fallen world to those who walk in darkness. But John chapter 1, verse 11 through 12 says... He came to his own, which means he came to his own people, his own Jewish kindred. He came to them first because first was given to them the promises and the covenants, as we saw. But sadly, it says his own did not receive them. 
His own received him not. As a whole, the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah. And they killed him. But as many as received them, John says, to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. You know, the uh, angel of the Lord said to Joseph, she, Mary, would give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And I invite you today to consider the Christmas story, to see the best gift Christmas offers that yes, Jesus came and, and we celebrate that but that you consider the one who came in order to die in order to pay for the sins of his people it is the greatest gift anyone could give and I pray that this has blessed you and I hope that the light of the world has filled your hearts in Christ Jesus please stand as we worship him now God bless. Um, everyone can just gather around the pews in a circle.